Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, this is what we pray. Lord, you empty us out and uh, fill us with you. Lord, I pray that we would um, do that even now, or that you would uh, take out all of our uh, thoughts of the things we've got to do when we leave here, all the things we have to do tomorrow. And, uh, and Lord, press pause and uh, trust you that you'll bring those back to mind and we can deal with them uh, here later. <laughs> but Lord, I pray that now we would uh, deal with uh, your word um, and, uh, Lord, that we would be changed and that we would sing a song. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, how many people watched the Derby last weekend? we have any Derby watchers? Um, I watched the Derby last weekend, 145th edition, uh, by the way. Uh, and um, I watched it with uh, some people. Uh, some of them were very small, and some of them were more my size. And uh, one of those people in the room, uh, not in that room, but with, I don't know, a bookie, whatever they're called, uh, put a $200 bet down on uh, maximum security. And um, when maximum security, uh, the, the, the person who crossed the finish line first, not the winner, but the one who crossed the finish line first, uh, when he won, my friend who I knew had put $200 down, went absolutely ballistic. I mean, it was like the way most of us would act if UK won the national championship, right? And um, he's going so crazy. And then, you know, just if you're watching, you know exactly what happens here. Just a, f- just a few moments later, uh, you see that, uh, that, that the, 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 the race is now under review. Perhaps maximum security did not win. Uh, and in fact, they find out that uh, they make the decision, uh, whether you agree with it or not, they uh, made the decision uh, that one of the riders uh, had impeded the progress of uh, other horses. And so it was ruled that now, not maximum security won, but country house wins, okay? Um, now, what I find really fascinating is, is not just uh, my friend's demise of his $200. Uh, what I find fascinating are some of the numbers involved here. Um, for instance, if you put $1,000 on maximum security, you would have won roughly $4,000, okay? If you would have put $1,000 on country house, you would have won $65,000. Um, $6.2 million of bets were placed on maximum security, a mere $500,000 was placed on country house. Now, if you're, not a, if you're not a math person, let me just uh, even the playing field for us. Uh, that means that there were a lot of people who were really, really angry and a very few people who were really, 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 really excited. But as I watched my friend's demise of his $200, um, I was standing there quite detached uh, because I hadn't done anything except with my kids placed a few quarter bets uh, for fun. I wasn't very invested. But isn't this the lure of all? See, commitment's risky. Whether it's your commitment to your job, maybe it's a commitment to a real estate investment, but if you put a lot in, you can get a lot out or you can lose it all. And that's what makes things like dating so difficult. That's why some of us love risky investments. That's why some of us bet on horses while some of us bet nothing at all. See, our lives are really this high-stakes game. Jesus says, uh, if you want to lose your life, then you'll save it. But if you save your life, then you lose it. See, you can gain everything or you can lose it all. 
But the gospel of Jesus Christ guarantees us that we can make a bet that's sure to pay off. And some of you might stand back and say, well, that's not how I've thought about faith. I really thought that, like, if you're killing it, you'll get a great return in your religious life. And if you're flounder, then you're destined for doomed. But that's not gospel logic. See, gospel logic says that as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ in history is, that's as sure as your salvation is. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you've placed your faith in Christ, then your salvation is a guarantee. It's the best investment of all. You're guaranteed a return as long as you put your bet on the table. See, we see this play out in our passage today in Acts chapter 12. You're going to see three key leaders uh, who place their bets. They either place their bets on themselves or they place their bets on God who raised Jesus from the dead. There's nothing casual going on in our passage. So let's start uh, and read it together. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone into the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judah to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The word of the Lord. So you saw the three main characters here, didn't you? We see James at the very beginning. And James is persecuted, persecuted to death. In fact, he was decapitated. Then we see Peter. And Peter was imprisoned, and then he was delivered. And then the last person we see is that we see Herod, and Herod's destroyed. So you can see this is a high-stakes game. Remember, nothing casual is going on here. You either are uh, persecuted, uh, you're delivered, or you're destroyed. So let's look at the first one. Let's look at James, verses 1 to 5. See, when we get to Acts chapter 12, we're back in Jerusalem. Last week, if you were with us, at the end of chapter 11 of Acts, uh, we're up in Antioch, uh, about 500 miles north. That's where uh, that instance takes place. But now we're back in Jerusalem. And here's what you need to know about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where all the apostles are. The the, the leaders, all the, the, the main leaders of the church are the apostles, and they're all in Jerusalem at this point. And Jerusalem, like in the days of Jesus, is also ruled uh, by the Romans. It's part of the Roman Empire. And the head honcho in the Roman Empire is the Caesar or the Roman Emperor. And then the way that the Roman Emperor dispersed his power is that he put, he put people in charge of the various areas of his rule. And the person who was ruling over Jerusalem and the surrounding country is Herod. His name's Herod Agrippa I. And this guy is a political savant. He knows exactly what he's doing. And if you read some of the other history, uh, even outside the scriptures, you find out that Herod Agrippa I, that he practiced a lot of the Old Testament law. He's not a Jew, but he lives like a Jew. And guess who loves it that he's living like a Jew? The Jews. And so there was a lot of peace. And he, for him, there was, a, there was a huge investment that was made to make sure that the Jews loved him. He didn't need them to like him, but it made his life a lot easier. Now, we know uh, that up to this point in the book of Acts that the, that the, the, the um, people coming after the church the most aren't uh, Roman governors. They're not, it's not the Roman government. But the people coming after the church up to this point in the book of Acts are the Jews. So now it makes sense why Herod would want to come after the church too. So Herod joins the Jews. He joins the party. He begins to ingratiate himself to his Jewish constituents by going after the leaders of the church. So what does he do? He kills James. He martyrs him. He's the first apostle to be martyred. And right after that, he keeps going, so he imprisons Peter. They're persecuted. It's an enticing appeal to Christian faith, isn't it? If you're not a Christian, you came, you're just visiting tonight, you're like, well, I'm trying to check out this Christian faith thing. I know a person or four in here. They seem like nice folks. Uh, They say that their friends are nice too. Maybe I'm here and I'll check out this whole Jesus thing. Uh, And now the pastor's telling me that I might get my head cut off if I begin to follow Jesus. And for some of us, we think this talk, when we get to places like this in Acts, we say, well, man, maybe this just applies to Christians in other parts of the world, like North Korea, uh, maybe a place like Iran, maybe parts of uh, Northern Africa, but not in America, not in the land of the free and the home of the brave. 
regardless of where you live and what era you live in, there's always conflict. There's always conflict between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of heaven. Now, you might not die in your life like James says here because of your faith in Christ. But friends, you will suffer. You will undergo persecution. But what does it look like? If it doesn't look like being decapitated, then what is it? Well, in our day and place, you're much, much, much more likely to experience being kept at a distance. You're going to be kept at a distance by those who are highly skeptical of the Christian faith. There's going to be this marginalization that will occur because you're thought to be narrow-minded or small-minded. You might be considered to be a fanatic. Uh, you might be considered to be anti-intellectual. And maybe worse of all, you may be considered a bigot. But we usually don't call these kinds of conflicts persecution, do we? We usually misdiagnose these kinds of conflicts that we're experiencing. Instead, we call them, we're just having a personal conflict. Now, there are times where you're having personal conflict and it's not persecution. There's times you have personal conflict and it's your fault and you need to repent. You're not being persecuted. You are just being a jerk. However, at other times, the nature of our personal conflict is not really personal, though it feels like it. It's persecution. And persecution isn't about you. It's about Jesus. You're in this personal conflict for no other reason than it's a clash of kingdoms. So it's a high stakes game. Putting your, going all in, putting your chips in on Jesus. Yes, it means that we'll be persecuted. But it also means that we're going to experience some sort of deliverance. Look at Peter. Peter's the next main character that we see here. And if you've been with us in Acts, you know that Peter is pretty squirrely when it comes to prison. He finds his way out of these kinds of places. Uh, Acts chapter 5, he's also rescued by an angel. Herod for sure knows about this. So what Herod wants to do is he wants to turn it up a notch. And Luke, the author of Acts, is showing us by using words like four squadrons, centuries, of, of soldiers going on here in the jail cell. See, uh, the Roman Empire is the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And now what, what Herod Agrippa I wants to do is leverage all those resources and all that power to ensure that Peter doesn't get out again. See, he's got two chains attached to him, not just one. He's got guards on the inside of, him, of his cell, outside of his cell, and at the gates of the prison. There's lots of, uh, there are several barriers that have, to, that, that have to be crossed if he's ever going to get out of here. And so, what could a little community, this little community of Jesus that we read about here, with all its powerlessness, do against the arm might of Rome? What resources do they have? Well, they have prayer. I mean, what else are they going to do? I mean, they have absolutely no leverage. And they're backed into this corner to pray. And when they're backed into this corner, it's really, really bad news for Herod. Because prayer is going to be their most potent weapon. And they're said in this passage to, be, to, to have prayed earnestly. Earnestly. This word earnestly is used another time in the New Testament. It's used to talk about the way that Jesus prayed. 
when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was, when he was praying so hard that he was physically sweating blood. So the t- kind of prayer that the church is practicing here, there's an intense sincerity about it. There's a determination. There's this fervor. They really did believe that God could work a miracle here. And the miracle is exactly what happened. Peter's freed in the middle of the night by an angel, and he ends up at the doorstep of the house where the church is praying. Why don't we pray like this? I think one explanation is that we think we have the power within ourselves to solve our own problems. Let me give you some examples. Some are positive and some are negative. Uh, Here's one. Uh, Not long ago, uh, Jen and I, we were a little short on money and weren't sure how we were going to make ends meet. And so we decided to pray. And guess what happened? Uh, Jenna got rear-ended, and uh, instead of using the money that we received in the check uh, for, uh, to fix our van, we used it for what we needed it for. And Jenna and I laughed about it, and I said, isn't that hilarious? Literally this morning we prayed, and this is what happened. Another one, parenting. Now, that might have been a big deal for you, but we've got an old van. Uh, we took that as a huge win. Um, two, with, with our parenting, this is a negative example. Um, we frequently, we're trying to find the right parenting book. We're trying to find the right technique. We're trying to find the right specialist, all to help us navigate the challenging waters of parenting. And you know what? We, especially me, are so frequent we, that, 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 we, that we neglect. We neglect to pray. This past uh, September, um, our family, um, and we were there with uh, a dear friend of mine. And he's, he didn't grow up in a, in, in a, uh, in a, a late into high school, perhaps even early college in that time span. And he had uh, one sibling, and it's his brother. And his brother he began to pray for uh, really faithfully. He's done it for almost 20 years. And lo and behold, his brother and his family came to this family camp. And for the first time, his brother, uh, my, my friend's brother, told my friend uh, that he'd been wrestling with the claims of the Christian faith and finally said, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus. And my friend was telling me this, and I said, man, aren't you shocked? This is crazy. I can't believe that your crazy brother is actually going to follow Jesus. And he said, why are you so surprised? I've been praying for him for 20 years. See, James 4 says this, we have not because we ask not. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a certain? If you then, who are evil, flattering remark, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? See, friends, you cannot out-ask God. You can't ask more for more than God is able to give. Yet we really don't think that God's all that powerful, and that's why we don't pray, and the reason we don't think He's all that powerful is because we think that we are. So there comes a natural question at this point in the narrative, doesn't there? Why did James get the axe and Peter get the angel? They're both apostles. 
What's the difference between these two? Had Peter been saying his prayers and James had skipped a couple days? Did the church not care about James and therefore not be praying for him and that's why he didn't get saved? Well, Luke, again, the author of Acts, he doesn't speculate about why James perish, perished and why Peter was rescued. All Luke's interested in doing is telling the story and he's leaving it to us to fit the puzzle together. So how are we supposed to fit these two puzzle pieces together that don't seem to fit at all? How do we square with God's saving power in Peter's life with the death of Jesus? Can these fit? And friends, this is the doctrine that's called the providence of God. See, God's providence is God working to preserve and govern all his creatures and all their actions. What that simply means is that God's at work all the time, everywhere. Sometimes we consider that work to be God's sweet providence. And we consider it to be sweet because we're in agreement with what God is doing in our little lives. Sometimes we call this God's bitter providence. And we call it bitter because we don't really, we're not really all that crazy about what God is doing in our little lives. And the doctrine of God's providence, and as we begin, uh, as we begin to apply it in our lives, we begin to ask a lot of why questions, don't we? We begin to ask the questions, why did my mom's cancer go into remission, while my friend's mom's cancer didn't? Why do I struggle with this addiction and this person over here doesn't? Why did I get exposed to all manner of filth as a child, but my roommate didn't? Why do I live with this nagging disability and others don't? And friends, my answer is I'm not sure. But think about Stephen. Stephen, we saw earlier in uh, Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, uh, he, we see Stephen. He's this rising star and his life is cut off too short. He's got the potential to make this huge difference for the kingdom of God if he's just allowed to live a little bit longer. That's the way we look at Stephen. But there was a man at Stephen's execution. His name's Saul. Saul becomes Paul and writes a lot of the New Testament. And at the time of Stephen's execution, he's the foremost persecutor of the church. And I've got to think that the calmness with which Stephen died gave testimony to the gospel and made a difference in Saul's life. But Stephen had no idea as he's being stoned to death that this is why he's dying. Think about Joseph. Joseph, you, you see his, his story in, in Genesis chapter, chapters 37 through 50. You know, Joseph is sold into slavery by his other brothers. They don't like him, so they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He rises the ranks and ends up being in a position where he's given the revelation of a dream that Egypt's going to have this huge, that the world's going to have this huge famine. They're going to store up all their, all their barley, all their wheat, and have food to be able to feed the world, literally the world, uh, in the years to come. And so that's what they do. And guess who wanders on back to Egypt to get food? Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery. Now, did Joseph have any idea when he got sold into slavery that that was why it happened? No. But stories like Stephen's and stories like Joseph give us hope that God's at, indeed, he's at work, even in our bitter providences. 
William Cooper, uh, in one of his hymns, he writes this. This is really powerful. He says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Brother and sister, you may never get the answers to your suffering or why evil and pain exist in the world, but you can trust God because His sovereignty extends to all things, the sweet providences and the bitter. So things pretty intense thus far, right? You've got a guy who's decapitated the first few verses. <laughs> You've got Peter who undergoes this miraculous deliverance from prison. And the last part of chapter 12 tells us about Herod. And starting in verse 21, you begin to see what happens to him. So not only does he oppose Christ's appointed leaders, James and Peter, but now he's stealing glory for himself. And he does it this way. See, there's this huge public event. And, Peter's, or, and, and Herod's there. And we've got an, a, another historian. His name's Josephus. Josephus was a historian in the first century. And he gives a report of the exact same event that Luke is recording here in Acts 12. And in it, he says that uh, Herod is wearing a silver garment. And that when the sun's rays hit the garment, that the garment glitters because of the sun. And it's to do this to flatter the crowd. And the crowd ends up chanting. They say, this is what Josephus says. He says, be gracious to us. We have revered you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be more than mortal in nature. Doesn't that fit verse 22? You see what verse 22 says? Verse 22 says, uh, the voice of God and not a man. So here you've got this political figure, Herod. And you know he's loving this praise. He's soaking it up. It, it, it's absorbing into the very pores of his being, into his very heart. And so not only does the crowd think he's special, but he thinks he's pretty special too. It isn't that the root of all of our problem. See, our original design is to live in a glorious world in perfect harmony with a glorious God. But sin entered the picture. Now sin has corrupted the original design. And now we have this desire to steal the glory that's to be attributed to God and not to ourselves. So we're what one author, Paul Tripp, calls glory thieves. And Paul Tripp says this. We demand to be in the center of our world. We take, we take credit for what only God could produce. We want to be sovereign. We want others to worship us. We establish our own kingdom. We punish those who break our laws. We tell ourselves that we're entitled to what we don't deserve. And we complain when we don't get whatever it is that we want. It's a glory disaster. End quote. Doesn't that sound like Herod in our passage? And doesn't that sound like you? Because it sure does sound like me. You don't have to wear a silver garment. You don't have to have thousands of people to call you God to be a glory thief. 
But stealing glory sounds pretty appealing most of the time, doesn't it? Until you realize it will destroy you like it does Herod. Herod was eaten by worms. You give me a lot of options about how to die. Eaten by worms is not towards the top. In the first century, they didn't have a lot of, they didn't have the medical means to be able to describe exactly what happened, but it's possible, at least some of the stuff I read this week, said it's possible he died of appendicitis, said it's possible that he died because he had worms in his bowels. But the point is, <laughs> as awful as that sounds, uh, that being a glory thief is going to kill you. And God takes very serious when you steal what's intended to be his. And we know he takes it serious with what he did to Herod. But you also know he takes it serious by what he does to his beloved son. See, Jesus' death is gruesome. It's even more gruesome than what Herod had to experience. He had spear piercings. He had the nails. And he had this crown of thorns. Why? Why is Jesus' death so graphic? Is it to show the Romans' lack of humanity? Not at all. It's to show us the hideousness of being a glory thief. It's to show us the gravity with which God the Father takes it. But think about Jesus. He didn't do any glory thieving. Every time he got glory, he deflected it to his heavenly Father. He said that he only did what the Father compelled him to do. So instead of Jesus absorbing the praise that he was given on earth... He ends up dying. And he dies because he chose to. And he chose the shame and the isolation and the rejection instead of the praise. Why would he do that? It said that he could include glory thieves into his kingdom. See, you and I were meant to live in a glorious world with a glorious God. And that's what Jesus was up to. He wants to get us back into living into a glorious world with a glorious God by crowning us with His glory. And when you know you've been crowned with His glory that you have nothing to do with, when, and the fact who you really are is that you're a glory thief, you're a glory robber, when you see that that's happened, it changes how you view everything in your life. Think about our text. See, our default pasture, or pasture, our, our, our default posture is to question James's death, isn't it? Why did James have to die? But the author doesn't. He doesn't question it. And I think it's because he has a deep trust that comes from knowing that we have a loving Heavenly Father who's in control. I think about another default posture. See, our default posture, if we were Peter, is not to sleep when we're on the verge of execution, is it? Did you catch that when we were in that story? He's fast asleep, and he's got two chains and guards everywhere. He's so asleep that when he wakes up, he has no idea what's going on. He's like you and I are the first 30 minutes we're awake. He's sleeping like a baby. How could he do that? Because he knows that he's a glory thief that's been put in a glorious world with a glorious God. See, our default posture, if we were the early church, and if our respected leader, who's, who's imprisoned wrongfully, we, we would publicly protest. We'd privately strategize for his or her release. That's what we would do. But what does the early church do? 
They pray to a God who can come up with solutions that they couldn't even dream of. But that's what happens when you see that you've been a glory thief transformed into someone who's glorious because of Jesus. Or how about viewing Herod's death? Again, our default posture is to explain Herod's death in very natural terms. But the truth is, there's, a, 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 there's very much a theological reasoning for the basis of his death. It's because he took the glory that was for God alone. See, you begin to see all of life very differently when you begin to put the glory of God at the center of your life. You begin to see that you can go all in on Jesus and never lose that bet. God's going to defend his glory. God's going to answer your prayers. God's going to deliver you either in this life or in the next. Or as verse 24 puts it, God is going to grow his church. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we so badly, we want to save our own lives instead of losing them to you. Show us, uh, show us how irrational that really is. In Christ's name, amen.